so this is Ruth Hancock from Work Your Energy podcast. And today I'm so excited to talk to Michael Laflemme, who is the author of Visions of Atlantis. I've just finished reading his book. It's really amazing. And now I'm going to ask him lots of questions around his book. So hi, Michael. Welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. That's it's, it's great to have you here. And I just can't wait to start you know, diving into all these different questions. So, so I've read your book. I've read a few books, as I said before, on Atlantis, you know, and I can see some sort of like similarities. But what I really love is the way that you've incorporated so much of Edgar Cayce's um, channeled works into it, because there really isn't much evidence around Atlantis. And, you know, because of that, a lot of people are still dismissing it. I totally think that there was an advanced civilization. I think that we have plenty of evidence to show that there was advanced civilization before us. Although time frames, I can never really quite get my head around time frames. I do think that more and more of us are starting to wake up to this now. So um, yeah, so anyway, as I was saying, so I love the way that you've pulled Casey into all of this. And I just wanted to ask, so the when, when you're talking about Casey and the, the channeled, um, information that he's talking about Atlantis how accurate do you think this is do you think that he made that he may have made some mistakes about Atlantis in time frames and things well it, it's interesting because um you know to answer the questions kind of uh backwards you know your last question somebody asked him directly that question like how accurate do you when he was in trance, consider this information. And he said something uh, quite interesting. Uh, he said basically, well, depending on how people interpret this evidence, the information can be considered, you know, accurate or less accurate. And he said, you know, as a channeler, you can compare me as an instrument akin to a record player. So the record remains permanent, but the fidelity of the needle, for example, on a good record player, might bring forth a clear picture and and so i thought that was interesting you know because he's saying there there's a thing that he believed you know called the akashic records and the light records or the skein of time as he called it the fabric of reality that you know all actions that have ever taken place in history are are permanently recorded but but how one accesses that you know varies in terms of like attunement um and, and also the receptivity of the people in the room you know, and, and a friend of mine, um, a colleague, Brendan Murphy, who wrote a really interesting book called uh, The Grand Illusion, he recently, you know, passed me an article about that very subject where they did a series of interviews with channelers. And if people were in the room who, who were, you know, positively, you know, affirmative in believing that these people could actually perform they they seem to get a much more accurate picture of of even recent events that the channelers you know were talking about or remote viewing sessions and if there was a person in the room who was a strict materialist or just a pure skeptic um, it interfered with the kind of signal so i thought that was interesting and you know regarding the actual data that he uh, proposed in terms of dates um, geographical locations for the various iterations of Atlantis, of which, you know, he said it, there were three, starting from a continent down to the small island archipelago that, that Plato would have been talking about. Um, you know, I found those startlingly accurate when you actually looked at 
certain specific things that, that he mentioned in, in the 1930s, really, and 40s. But the majority of his Atlantis readings were the early 1930s. And, you know, I put a lot of examples of that in the book where when I talk about a few, um, I, I could bring up a couple. But yeah, I found them them more accurate than not. You know, I think a lot of times when people critique him, it's for his uh predictions, you know, of, of future events and future world developments, you know, far into the 20th century, because he died in 1945. Um, but he would be the first to tell you that uh, nothing is set in stone. And, and just like Dolores Cannon talks about with Nostradamus, um, these are just kind of statistical probabilities if humanity continues down this current path that the Chandler or seer is is experiencing at that time, you know, but it is interesting that in terms of short-term predictions, I mean, in 1935, Casey identified all the allied and Axis powers that would go to war five years later, um, when few people suspected that Austria would be the preeminent dominant military superpower in, in Western Europe, but he specifically said that. So I think it, it's, it was worth looking at, and uh, specifically with Atlantis, um, I consider him one of the greatest you know, sources of, of channeled information for that subject. And I think you know, I'm not alone in that. Yeah, no, I agree. I think um, the reason I ask that is because you know, it just sounds so incredible, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, you know, it, it's and you know, possibly that's because we've been so sort of you know brainwashed through movies, you know, to think all of this is just one big movie. And sure. um, you know, it's just I, I find it really, really fascinating the way he's talking about Atlantis. I mean, for example, you know, the half humans, the half animals, and the mm -hmm. debauchery that went around with that. <laughs> and I sort of think, oh my god, could could humans actually get that bad, you know? And yeah, <laughs> I think so. Yeah, I think so. absolutely. And, you know, um, that's a really interesting uh, chapter that I really enjoyed uh, writing and researching because, you know, I went into that completely open minded, but also, you know, like 50 50, like I did with all this evidence. I didn't go in saying I'm going to prove that, you know, chimeric uh, human beings existed and this is the evidence. You know, I was just curious myself as a, you know, conventional historian of, of the 20th century, that's my specialty, and, and, and 18th century onward is what I studied. So I came at this from a kind of, you know, outsider's perspective myself. And I think that was, was an advantage, because when I looked at what he was saying, for example, about these, you know, mutants or hybrid human beings or, or things or automatons, as he variously referred to him, you know, you have to put it in the context of his time. And I mean, there was no, to my knowledge, widespread understanding of, for example, human cloning in 1930, when he, 32, when he was giving that reading particularly. So when he used the word automaton, um, you know, which you could think of as robot or, or, but he did not say robot, he said automaton. And, and then you look at other channeled readings from, um, you know, Barbara Han Clough, for example, or um, Phyllis Schlemmer, and who, who themselves talk about genetic manipulation in distant Atlantis and, and their accounts, you know, seem to line up and it does seem to suggest a few things where there was this kind of group, um, that Casey calls, you know, the sons of Belial, which were kind of like a dark scientist, transhumanist priest class who, who were involved in 
you know, not just genetic manipulation, but he even says that a lot of these things were natural, that, that when, you know, consciousness first incarnated in three-dimensionality in, in the millions BC, according to him, a lot of these things um, were, were natural results of like, whatever you want to call it, uh, you know, extra dimensional or Pleiadian or, you know, wherever you want to put the origin of, you know, human consciousness. But these were the result of those uh, thought forms going into, you know, the already existing flora and fauna of the earth and kind of directing their evolution in a much more um, guided way than just, you know, Darwinian evolution that would suggest, you know, it was just attrition and survival of the fittest that led to highly developed animals and eventually human beings. Casey said directly that we did not come from monkeys. In fact, that's a quote he had. And so it's, it's interesting that, that it wasn't just genetic manipulation uh, and it wasn't necessarily extraterrestrial genetic manipulation. In Casey's case, it was highly advanced humans who were interacting with pre-existing hybrids and then doing all sorts of the things you mentioned, like using them as sex slaves, workers, laborers, and, and in other accounts, tinkering, you know, with them. And, um, you know, I don't think it's that crazy because as I show in that chapter, you know, we've already created human pig hybrids. We just haven't brought them to term. We cut them off, I think at like two months in, in the womb. And allegedly it was for you know, organ uh, harvesting potentials and things like this. But I cite the scientist who said, you know, if we had let these things born, it would have been a new species, you know, a chimeric human being. And that that's today. And, you know, if you think of a civilization that's, even though it's in the quote unquote past, it would have been thousands of years more advanced than us. Well, it just figures to me that if we can do that now um, with our very limited technology, certainly if a culture existed that was as advanced as Casey said that, sure, they could absolutely do this. And, and naturally, if they didn't have any ethical restrictions, they would, you know. Yeah, I like that um, when, when Casey was talking about that, you know, that these uh, Pleiadian sort of uh, thought forms mm -hmm. incarnated and they used whatever flora and fauna they could, you know, sort of access, if you like, at that right. time. And, um, and then sort of evolve through that flora and fauna, you know, mm -hmm. and that's nice, that links with the morphogenic field, um, you know, and, and even to a certain extent links with panspermia as well, you know, which I thought this is, this sort of, you know, it makes sense um, and possibly, you know, it's, it's, how it's, it's how it has been described, as you say, these are things that we can do now, but having mm -hmm. been described by someone, you know, 100, 200, 300 years ago, they would have seen this in a very different way to how we, we are seeing it. Right. Absolutely. And it's why I think he's a very important source, because a lot of the things he was talking about, you know, had not even emerged as, as technologies. You know, he's talking about cloning, he's talking about atomic energy. He's talking about um, directed energy weapons like harp and things like this that never even existed in his own timeline. Uh, you know, he died before the atomic bomb, I believe, was dropped, you know, or right around that same time, like within months. So and those readings were from before that time period. So, you know, that's why I really focused on him, because uh, as I show in um, a later chapter with with more modern channelings from the 90s and the 2000s, you know, it's, it's 
I understand when skeptics say, well, this person just watched Star Wars or Stargate Atlantis. And, you know, they said that they got this from a general source. And, and that's a hard thing for me to refute because obviously that's a very, you know, difficult thing. How do you untangle the pop culture and science fiction uh, references, even if these people truly were in contact with, you know, a source. So I tried to show just like the other source I used, Frederick Oliver, who was channeling in or automatic writing rather, he wasn't in a trance, he was fully awake when he did it. But I mean, he was writing in 1886 and he was describing things in more detail than Casey, technological things that, again, it's, it's very unlikely that there was a secret contributor or it was, you know, in, in retrospect, uh, somebody added something after publication because I always say the, the latest anybody could have uh, manipulated A Dweller on Two Planets would have been 1905 when it was published for the first time. And even in 1905, the things that he's talking about as having existed in Atlantis are not even in the public consciousness, you know? And so that's why I look at these older channelings as kind of a goldmine. And when they, you know, correlate and they line up in ways that most people were not looking for, I thought I had built a pretty strong case that, you know, these two channelers were in fact, um, you know, to the best of their ability, communicating some sort of, you know, lived reality. And then when I corroborated that with, you know, certain oceanographic, geographic, or, or even anthropological evidence, um, again, I was more, you know, surprised than I thought to find that there were very strong correlations between mainstream um, peer-reviewed journals, for example, of, you know, extinctions, and then events that Casey said um, had happened. And, and so, I think that was kind of like the the strength of the book from what, you know, people who have read it and, and written me reviews or letters or emails has been is just, you know, I they had never seen uh, somebody in one book really show that connection. You know, most people that have written about Edgar Casey presume everybody already believes that what he's saying is true. It's written for, you know, true believers already. But I wanted to kind of introduce that kind of work to a skeptical audience, you know, and and I really tried my hardest to myself debunk what he said, um, and I was unsuccessful. So I therefore have to believe that there was a lot of truth to what he said, you know. Yeah, no, I can totally see that. And I, you know, I think from my my own research, I'm researching my next book now, you know, and um, I can see there's enough evidence, you know, with the, the sort of these massive temples and, you know, the signs of advanced technology, you know, being able to dematerialize stone and mold it, being able to, you know, levitate stone, um, cut it, you know, the, the great blocks that you can find around the world, you know, that some of them look like they were even flying stones, you know, mm-hmm. these sorts of things. I can see all of this, which I think comes up in the uh, the Indian texts a lot. Not necessarily the uh, Benyamas, but you know what I mean, with the, the flying mm-hmm. aspect of being able to do this. And so I can see that there's enough evidence of these advanced civilizations. Mm-hmm. And um, I think another area that I find interesting, you know, which you sort of touched on in your book, book and, you know, with the, 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 the 3D reality, you know, so the Pleiadian... Um, thought forms eventually incarnated and obviously had to lower their vibration so much to be able to get into this physical form. Mm-hmm. Now, as you, as you, as Edgar Casey says, is that 
they sort of they manifested if you like they were the spirit that manifested through the flora and fauna and then eventually creating uh, humans as we are today and then so of course that creates that duality you know that then in order to be able to exist in that physical form we have to have that dark and that light that duality you know good and evil sure. whatever it may be but um i sort of feel that the where the different civilizations or mankind is being wiped out is because they keep earing towards the the dark if you like the you know de demonic side mm -hmm. um and yeah. i thought that was interesting you know that this it's about keeping this balance in us because of course many people will say that we're going down that same route today i actually disagree i think we're very much uh moving into the light myself sorry carry on yeah no, that's that's very interesting because um, I'm curious to know more about um, why, because I happen to agree with you um, on some level, like that this is not just another normal return to, you know, the fall of Atlantis or the fall of Rome or the fall of any great empire, because I think just the fact that, you know, we're having this conversation and people have been reading this book, uh, it gives credit to to what you were saying that I think on some level we're, we're obviously in a crazy time. Like there's no denying that, but I don't think it's it's faded to repeat. I think actually we're just seeing the kind of last dying vestiges of this, you know, group that you mentioned has been around for you know time immemorial. And I think it's quite clear, especially in this year, that um, you know the, a huge proportion portion of humanity is 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 seeing through that pattern and saying like hey, look, we, whether they read Atlantis books or not, like, we don't want to do this anymore. And we're not going to let this happen. So I think that's good, because I think too many people just get into that mindset of, oh, here we go again. You know, we're, we're doing this again. And I really tried my best in the, you know, conclusion of the book to, to not just be this like, doomsayer, you know, because I think it's, it's, it's not faded at all. No. And I feel that the archonic energy is the same energy that keeps sort of coming in, you know, keeps coming in and trying to take over. And I suspect that they possibly did manage to take over a much more advanced civilization who had much mm -hmm. more advanced technology. But I, I do sort of feel that possibly there are many, many people who were in Atlantis who have who have incarnated today in order to right their wrongs. And so yeah. I think that they're not going to be duped, you know, and mm. um, so the archonic energy, it's trying its bestest, you know, to, to do this, the same thing that it did before, but it's actually a very small minority. And right. I think possibly why the energies of the planet are rising, it's allowing more of us to access our higher self, you know, our own higher consciousness, if you like. And so we are accessing more of our memories and certainly many, many people that I speak to and work with, you know, talk about being at Atlantis and the things that they did at Atlantis. We know that that was wrong. And we, we know that we're moving into a new world. And in a sense, we remember, we're remembering the past activities so that we don't do them again. And I know that the children who are coming in now as the new human that Mary Rodwell, Rodwell talks about, and I'm interviewing her next week on my podcast, she talks about the children who are coming in now remember their past lives. They remember all of this. And I think that, again, wow. is so that because that's the thing, isn't it? If we remember our past lives, then, of course, we're not going to make the same mistakes. But I do think that the, the energies of the planet are also synchronized at the same time. 
Sure. So that's helping us to move. Uh, that's, that's interesting. And, you know, another thing I always remind people just as a, you know, historian, conventional historian, it's like, um, you know, even if, let's say, you know, in Edgar Casey's case or, or Frederick Oliver as well, they both point to, you know, three major cataclysms, some natural, some human caused that destroyed, you know, this one high civilization that in both cases coexisted with other high civilizations at different times and, and also concurrently, you know, so I don't look at it just as Atlantis was the whole world in, in one state. It was a, you know, regional superpower, if you will. But what's interesting is that, um, you know, if you just want to take some of the dates, like the first destruction of the continent of Atlantis, in Casey's case, is around 50,700 BC. The second is not until 28,000 BC, and the third is around 10,000 BC, closer to Plato's timeline. And without getting into too much detail, um, you know, because I still, I think that's one of the most exciting parts of the book, um, just take that at face value. Let's say that happened, you know, regardless of how it happened. But I mean, could you imagine if, you know, a single culture existed for 40,000 years according to these timelines. And in cases, it's even further back than that. But let's just take, you know, let's say it was existing for 10,000 years before 50,000 BC. Okay, so let's just put the starting date around 75,000, 60,000 BC. For a culture to last 50,000 years intact, to me, regardless of how many destructions it had or how much evil was in it, is incredible. I mean, and if you think about it today, uh, how long has the United States been a country? And, and how many, you know, wars and civil wars and internal contradictions has it had in its, you know, 250 roughly years as a civilization. And it's, it's almost imploding as I speak as a U.S. citizen. So it's like, you know, I always think instead of focusing on, um, you know, as a lot of critics who, who even believe in, in the reality of this, they focus on the fall and the fall. And I'm like, but what about the 50,000 years that it actually endured? You know, and and I think that's like another positive thing. It's like, look, if we were there and, and this was real, that's an incredible testament to what they were doing right that, you know, they lasted that long, you know, because I think the only historical analogs we have to something like an intact culture for that long would be portions of dynastic China, you know, where, you know, they still use um certain texts for you know entrance exams that that they use in confucian china pre-communist china they were still using that so it's like but that's just you know three thousand years or two thousand years it's like could you imagine if if we could achieve a level of stability for you know 10 to 20 to thirty thousand years and so i think um you know rather than focusing so much on on the fall and everything uh, i agree with you like we should focus on hey maybe we too can you know, create a some sort of stability globally where we we get to the point of persisting for let's just say five thousand years. That would be tremendous. Yeah, I, I I don't doubt that we can, and I'm very surprised that we haven't actually, because I do think that 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 hu the human species is you know is a a loving, compassionate species, and in fact, in um, something I was reading about, uh, Greg Braden was talking about the 
the evidence of the genetic altering in our chromosome two and chromosome seven, but in particular, he talked about the chromosome two, which actually created a lot of genetic changes. But one of which hmm. was that it um, it kicked it kick started empathy, compassion, and self healing. And I thought that was easy because this this was this was this has been dated back to two hundred thousand um, years ago, and it's that same time frame. Yeah, so we were. 200,000 years ago, we were genetically altered in a massive way, you know, which increased the brain size by 75%, you know, a lot of changes. And this I I thought was interesting. But I also think it's interesting that that was 200,000 years ago, what has happened since then. Right. And that's, that's fascinating, as well, that that he found that because in my book, that date is very important. I mean, that's the date Edgar Cayce essentially places for the emergence of modern humans and he said that in the 30s before dna was even discovered um so i mean that's quite interesting and then you look at the studies from rice university mainstream that say you know the the mitochondrial eve that all human beings allegedly alive today you know descend from 2000 200 bc and you know that's around the time i think you know even marco bigato and other people you know, place for one of the major empires of Atlantis, as hard as that sounds, that it is that far. But again, it's something I talk about, I think, extensively at the end of the book. It's like, these are only hard to think about if you view time in a linear fashion, because you, you are pre, you're kind of, you're predisposing yourself to, to, first of all, if a fallacious way of looking at time, which is to say that on a chalkboard, on a line, we are at 2023 on the right and 200,000 is on a line far, far to the left. But, you know, if you look at time as cyclical or as Frederick Oliver described as a threading threading motion of a screw or rather of a nut on a screw, then 200,000 is just more turns of the screw. It's not farther away from right now, you know? And so in a weird way, it's to me more likely that things were advanced that far away because to me in a cyclical timeline, it's more iterations in a kind of possibility generating machine called earth of experiences. So it's like, no, it's actually very likely, you know, that if we've been the same genetically, let's say for 200,000 years, you're telling me that we only discovered electricity in, you know, the 19th century, really? Like, what were we doing for the first 198,000 years? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, totally. I totally get that. And of course, there's another time frame involved, which I know Marco Vegato talks about as well, but it also comes up in the Sumerian tablets. So that the 432,000 years ago, mm-hmm. when, you know, supposedly the Anunnaki came and, and these sorts of things. Um, you know, and that takes us back 500,000 years ago. And, you know, that, again, as you rightly say, what have we been doing you know, that we only actually remember, you know, the last few hundred thousand years, well, no, not even that, the last few thousand years. Yeah, 6,000 maybe, you know, according to mainstream history, civilization began, you know, you could pick a region, but let's say the Neolithic revolution or something, you know, and whatever that even means, you know, they found a flint somewhere and, Oh, that's when people started to make flints. But then again, I think yesterday or this morning, I'm reading something where in uh, Ethiopia, 
they just found a tool making workshop with axe heads and they dated it to one point, I think, three million BC. And it's like, okay, so there were tool making hominids or something one million years ago. Okay, well, that's completely different than what every history textbook said last year and on and on, you know, and I think that, um, you know, I, I didn't at all address um, that 430,000 um, level timeline. In fact, I, I didn't read Marco's book until I finished mine because I didn't want to be influenced by his um, research, although I had seen a couple of his videos um, on YouTube interviews. But, you know, it's it's something I wanted to um, kind of avoid myself. I have a chapter, you know, a couple chapters, sub chapters on uh, extraterrestrials and and you know, ancient source material of, of intervention and channeled source material of Anunnaki intervention. But I didn't want to focus on it because I really thought that, you know, while that's a possibility and, and even likely, um, the, the main theme of this culture was, was still human, you know, and, and even if at certain points there was this kind of outside interference, um, I wanted to show how, according to Casey and, and all of my sources, um, these were highly advanced human beings who had reached a level of, you know, technology that to us would make them appear extraterrestrial and themselves were also probably in contact with other beings. But I think that was an important distinction because it's not just like simple humans and Pleiadian overlords or reptilian overlords or something. It's like, you know, it's, it's much more nuanced than that. And also you're dealing with time spans that are so immense. I mean, think about what's happened in the last hundred years in our civilization. So do I know what happened between 47,000 BC and 44,000 BC Atlantis? No, I have no idea. And I make no, you know, presumption to know, but what I do show is that in the cases where Edgar Casey did provide specific readings and detailed accounts of like what life was like at that time, I kind of show on a timeline like, okay, it seems like, you know, they had this kind of flying machine in the 50,000 BC culture. And it was quite simpler than the ones described at the, you know, 20,000 BC timeline. And then they ceased to exist in the 10,000 BC timeline where Plato's describing a essentially Bronze Age society that's still living among the megalithic capital city of this island called Atlantis, which he says himself was a military empire centered on a mid-Atlantic archipelago, you know, and if you piece that together with the Casey readings, it makes sense because Casey never read Plato by his own family's admission. And he says the same. He says, by the time I got to around 10,000 BC, through natural and man-made destructions, it had reached the point of just being three small islands off the coast of, you know, Portugal. And so it kind of makes sense that like, when you talk about Atlantis, it's like, what are you really talking about? You're, you've got to go through 50,000 plus years of history. And it's like saying, uh, well, in China, it's like, are you talking about the Han dynasty, the Ming dynasty, Mao's China, Xi Jinping's China? Like what, <laughs> there's all different. You know, and that's a tiny time scale. So when you're talking about what we were talking about, um, it's almost like why I don't even really like to talk about it with most people that, that have not looked at it because they have the Disney version of it where it's like uh, an underwater, you know, uh, city in the mid-Atlantic with cartoon characters riding dolphins. 
you know, and, and I think that's really an insult to the, the reality that all of the evidence shows was likely, you know, existed. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting what you're saying about the, um, you know, I, I agree with you that there doesn't have to be an extraterrestrial connection. I, you know, if you look at how long we've been on this planet for and, you know, you think about it doesn't make any sense whatsoever that we've only been here for a few you know, thousand years. I mean, we've obviously been here for millions of years, but we just don't have evidence of that. And I like the way that um, Graham Hancock talks about that there is evidence of us using psychedelics, you know, 40, 50, 60, 70,000 years ago. And that right. allows us to upgrade our consciousness, right? Um, you know, and through the morphic field, you know, mm -hmm. through through the energy field, what you know, whatever you want to call it. That, and mm -hmm. so and it allows us to connect with spiritual, you know, whatever they may be, multidimensional aspects of us, you know, or whatever it may be at all. Right. And that in its sense allows us to evolve, you know, to, to to step up to that next level. So in a sense, these these this advanced civilization could easily have become advanced through, you know, just having been around for such a long time and mm -hmm. and if you like you know using plant medicine because there's so much evidence of this for you know for tens of thousands of years people were doing this right absolutely absolutely and yeah i think it's it's absolutely true that anything else in in history you know if, if somebody were to ask me as say like one of my professional subfields like uh describe world war ii in in, in in a book it's like well there's been hundreds of thousands if not a million books on that subject about a five-year period in europe okay so anytime anybody attempts to talk about what we were talking about um it, it's almost like if this was a lived reality it's incomprehensibly dense and so all i'm trying to show is kind of what you were saying like look we've been here according to anthropological records and you know now this recent you know, tool finding record and things like this and you know gobekli tepe and gunung padang in indonesia temple complex dated to 22000 bc a pyramid in the middle of you know west java it's like obviously something was going on you know and and what you want to call that is up to you look we are not making any kind of absolute judgment you know like and, and it's something i really tried my hardest to refrain from in the book of like, and then on this day, Thursday, 96, you know, 100 BC at 3 a.m. Atlantis fell into the ocean. It's like, no, nobody knows that probably, you know. Um, but what we can definitely uh, agree on, I think, is that it is absurd. And I will say that quite vehemently. It is absurd to categorically deny the evidence of a highly advanced ice age and beyond pre-ice age civilization that certainly has left some legacy, you know, into the present. And uh, I think that's at the end of the day, even though it's a, you know, 385 page book with as many footnotes, it's like, that kind of is the, the point I arrived at, which is like, look, we're still at the very, very, very beginning, you know, of, of the investigation. You know, and, and I don't like anybody that conclusively, you know, claims. And I've read hundreds of books on this subject. And my least favorite are ones that say, and on Thursday, you know, 9600 BC, this is when it happened. It's like, 
you can't say that even about modern events with certainty. You know, from medieval times, we find discrepancies and, and things like this. And so it's like, I think it was good that I approached this from, you know, a mainstream academic perspective because I was trained as a professional historian and trained in a you know entire semester long course in all the fallacies historians make with modern history. And I, I had seen a lot of sloppy history writing about this topic by people who, you know, well-meaning or not, were approaching it from this like, well, I read a channel message and it's true. And it's like, well, let's take a look at that. And so I think uh, that's why I think it's, it's appealed to a lot of different kinds of people because, um, you know, I guess internally, like I'm different personalities, you know, like I believe in channeling, like from the evidence I've seen, I believe that it is a thing that actually can be used. And I think I show that um, with the Casey readings when, you know, of his 14,000 readings, only 500 involve Atlantis, but the others are documented by mainstream physicians from Harvard, Stanford, Yale. Uh, you know, it, it's not fake what he was doing. He could remote view, diagnose and heal people through channeling. That's irrefutably true. Now, does that translate into accurate visions of remote antiquity? Well, I let the reader decide, you know, because I think at the end of the day, it's it's not my job to convince anybody, you know? I'm just trying to show you like kind of my journey through this topic and what it means to me and why I think it's like really valid uh, point of history to study, you know? It's not just a silly thing. It's actually probably the default state of humanity that we don't even acknowledge is real, you know? Yeah, I agree with you completely, you know, and I, because I sort of come from, you know, like an academic background, um, you know, or an intellectual background, I agree that, that you know, that looking at the evidence, you know, the factual stuff behind it is really important. Um, and yeah, I also agree that channeling can work as well. But I, I also feel the same as you do, that one can get snippets of information and then, you know, not necessarily correct information so it's about you know re reviewing it you know and double checking it and that's what I like about what you've done is that you've double checked these things you've cross-referenced you know you obviously have a, a, an academic background in in history anyway but you you know you've linked it all up and I think that that gives a lot more credibility to Edgar Case's work as well. Oh well, thank you and um, you know it was fun for me you know as as like you say as a you know, I was a history professor for about 11 years as an adjunct lecturer and, and professor at different universities in Chicago. And it, it was it was fun because I started this research, you know, in the middle of, I think, a semester of teaching ancient Greece or ancient Rome. And it kind of explained uh, a lot of missing pieces for me, too, you know. And I always tell people, um, you know, particularly critics of the the date that Plato famously is given by, you know, Solon through the Egyptian temple priests at Sais of 9,000, you know, 600 BC roughly, or 9,000 years before the time of Solon, which if you put Solon when he was say 30 years old, you arrive at this, you know, famous 9,600 BC number. And, and people love to bend over backwards and use every single trick in the book to say that, oh, he really meant 960 or he really meant, or oh, in this translation. And it's like, once you go down that path where you are selectively reinterpreting 
things that using uh, the same translated text. I, I find that very uh, intellectually dishonest and, and frankly, like kind of cowardly because it's like, well, you just can't engage with the likely reality because that date also appears in Mayan Exodus myths from Atal. You know, that date also appears as the literal end in mainstream, you know, geological studies for the end of the Younger Dryas period that Plato would be not aware of. Do you know what I mean? And so it's like, it's actually more likely that he was telling you a correct date, but you're just, you know, stuck in this, you know, refusal to believe anything could happen then. Uh, and, and similarly, I remember, um, you know, seeing so many people reinterpret his expression of, well, with the pillars of Hercules, well, he really means the straits between Sicily and North Africa or Malta. And, and it's like, find any serious scholar who can translate ancient Greek, who will, told, will show you that, you know, the Greeks use the words like pelagos for smaller or inland seas like the Mediterranean, for example, or the Sea of Azov or things like this, even though the Mediterranean obviously is connected, but landlocked seas would be Pelagos, you know, or inshore seas, you know, and then Okeanos would be everything outside of that. And I mean, he, in the only way you can interpret that, he is describing an island outside of Gibraltar. That's all we can say with certainty. And you know, all these people who say, oh, he's just describing Sicily. He's just describing Sardinia. He's describing Crete, which had a, you know, volcanic eruption. It's like, no, he, he knew where Crete was. Uh, I'm pretty sure. And again, it's not to be flippant, but it's like, I'm pretty sure you're not as intelligent as Plato. In fact, I would bet money because that's why we study Plato and not, you know, some <laughs> random person who just thinks that, you know, one of the greatest thinkers of the Western mind was, was just wrong in one of his greatest dialogues, you know, that we, where that we teach in, in universities all over the world. And so that kind of annoyed me, you know, that people on the one hand take one of Plato's, you know, most famous characters, Socrates, and, and teach him and books are written about his genius. And then at the same time, they take another one of, you know, Plato's stories and utterly disregard it. Yeah, well, I mean, I think the thing is, because you're in the world of academics, you know, you've probably had to battle with many people over these sorts of things. It's, it's, <laughs> uh, it's, it's not an easy place to be. I totally get that. It's, it's taken me four years to unpick my ego, my intellectual ego, mm. um, to be able to even have conversations about things like this, you know. Wow. So, yeah, but I can see, you know, in the academic institutes, you know, you have to unpick the ego and many of them are just not in that place at this point in their life. Well, and I think that's why I don't teach in academia anymore. You know, um, it's been mm. probably three or four years since my last class, maybe more. And, you know, I really don't have any interest in, in that way of thinking um, per se. You know, I was so grateful to get the training, you know, and so grateful to have like truly open minded from undergrad through the Florida State History Department, you know, I, I dedicated the book to those uh, graduate advisors, actually, and, and they all read it. And they actually sent me the, the nicest message, like, you know, from their tenured academic position. And one of them said, um, you know, I can't believe you had the courage to write this, like, basically, like, if I wrote something like this, like, I would be denied tenure. And I thought that was, you know, cool, but also kind of like uh, a sign of what you just said, which is like that academic gatekeeping within the university, but, but also without, you know, and, and that's why I dedicated the whole um, third part of the book to 
engaging with this immovable object of the so-called debunking community, you know, and, and showing like case by case by case how many times they've, you know, attacked Graham Hancock or attacked Robert Schock or just viciously, you know, ad hominem, Graham Hancock is a racist because he thinks that Vera Kocha was, you know, it's like, well, Graham Hancock didn't come up with the myth of Vera Kocha. Mm-hmm. Um, he's just a journalist of science and a journalist of, you know, anthropology and one of the greatest, you know, purveyors of ancient knowledge in the world. And you're probably just mad because he's, you know, getting a hugely positive reception and your little clique of skeptics and debunkers who are l- largely invisible, you know, cloak and dagger people who, who don't engage in open debates, that, that people don't really care what you say anymore, you know, and, and I certainly don't, you know, and I've gotten, you know, a few criticisms of, of the book, but, but not of the book itself. In fact, it was funny, one of the harshest was basically like, well, people who love channeling will love this book, you know, but but people who know that archaeology cannot go back 9,600 years will find it worthless. And it's like, well, that's a compliment, you know, because I'm not writing this book for people who don't think that Gobekli Tepe, which has been radiocarbon dated to 10,500 BC exists, because if you don't admit that, then you're just being dishonest because it does exist. And we only recently discovered it. And it has transformed the monolithic academic, you know, edifice into this like completely d- different way of looking at life because you cannot look at just that temple complex and tell me that that was built by hunter gatherers. That's just impossible to to verify and and, and to to support. You know, these were not hunter-gathering people that had advanced astrologically aligned megalithic temple complexes. I refuse to believe that, unless we need to redefine what hunter-gatherers mean, you know? Okay, so that brings us to an interesting area. So uh, why do you think that we have forgotten all of this knowledge then, this forgotten, you know, the past, the history, our history? Is it because we literally have been wiped out three times, four times, and then recreated? Or, you know, from my research, I'm beginning to see that there's two possible sort of ways through, that either we've been totally wiped out and then recreated, or we've had select few, maybe 10, 15,000 population or something, who've then carried on, carried on through into the next civilization. But why do we forget so much? I mean, I know that the veil is thicker at this time, and this is done on purpose. I can see this, but we're talking. If we look back two hundred thousand years, mm-hmm. how come we can't remember any of that? That's a great question, and that's that's not an easy one. No, I, I don't think anyone has an answer <laughs> to answer. I think I think um, you know you you touched on a few. I think a lot of it is just you know probably from a you know trauma based standpoint. If if indeed uh, a comet or a solar flare or in Edgar Casey's two of his three destructions, it was a misapplication of technology. You know, I think if, if any of these things really did happen on a global scale or even large but localized scale, yeah, it would be something that would be so horribly traumatic that even if we did remember it, we wouldn't really want to, you know, believe that could happen again. And so I think that's one aspect of it. Um, but I think the other aspect in terms of like, you know, well, where's the, let's say, evidence or, or why can't we find these traces? It's like, well, 
in terms of like source material from antiquity, which is a great question, I, I always tell people like the largest collection of manuscripts on planet Earth was the two libraries at Alexandria. And, and Casey himself said this in, in multiple readings on the Library of Alexandria, which I had never seen cited in other work. Um, and it took me a long time to dig these out because they weren't about that. They just happened to pop up. And, you know, he says that what became the Library of Alexandria had actually been started in 10,300 BC during the Atlantean exodus to the Giza Plateau to restart their civilization during or before the final destruction. And so if that's true, then you're talking about by the time Julius Caesar set the docks on fire during the civil war between Cleopatra and her brother around 56 BC, and he was trapped in the royal palace with her, um, and it burned down a major portion of that, you know, like 80% of the collection was destroyed in that. Um, well, there you go. That, that if, there were, if there were records, then they would have been in there you know, of, of what was going on in that region. Um, and, you know, then after that, you have the second destruction by Orthodox Christians in, uh, you know, the more modern age or pre-dark ages, let's say, you know, four, three, what was it? Uh, in the fourth century, I believe, AD, you know, when um, Emperor Theophilius, I think, or Theodosius, the Bishop of, of Alexandria actually targeted it and destroyed it in an attempt to stamp out, you know, paganism in the Mediterranean, you know, in a, in a concerted effort. And I would argue took a lot of those texts to the, the Vatican um, in that because it was a it was a raid on the library. It wasn't just a, a fire catching from a military campaign. And then you have the final destruction, you know, under um, a Muslim warlord who happens to be, you know, occupying Alexandria a few hundred years later. So it's like whatever sources, not just about Atlantis, but about the entire history of the ancient world, pre-internet were localized in this one region. And so I, I cannot state enough, like what a catastrophic loss that was. Now, what do we have since that? We have stories from Egyptian priests that themselves would have been, had access to this, you know, archive pre-Julius Caesar. And this is where you get these sources that Plato mentions, you know, temple priests and from Sais in Lower Egypt and, you know, all sorts of things. But you're talking about multi-millions of, you know, volumes that were unique to the world from all cultures of the world. Because according to Edgar Cayce, Alexandria was, you know, just like it is today, it was a multicultural hub from all corners of the earth. And so I hate to say it, but I think that's a big part of it. Or let's say, Ruth, that these people like us stored information in, you know, crystals or hard drives that had like, you know, software that was contingent on hardware that no longer exists. It's like, well, then that's gone. Like if our culture lost all infrastructure um, in 200 years, how would anybody in a Mad Max hellscape figure out what was on a hard drive? Mm, yeah. And actually this, this uh, reminds me of a, a few things I've read that, um, so uh, Enoch talks in the book of Enoch about burying 200 texts under the pyramids. And I think Enoch mm. possibly was those. And um, so these are things that are yet to come out. And I, I think you're absolutely right. There is a lot in the Vatican. And oh, absolutely. Um, you know, we, we, I think, you know, something like this, 
we only know something like 20,000 things that are in there and there's 70,000 or something. But um, I suspect that these things are going to be coming out. They will come out in due course. Mm -hmm. Oh, I think absolutely. I think, you know, and and Casey says as much, you know, that, that when the time is right, these things will, will come out when, you know, humanity has achieved a level of maturity to be able to, you know, not just grapple with their, their real story, but, you know, harness this great power that, according to him, you know, was directly responsible twice for utterly destroying this civilization, you know, through, through a misapplication and another time through a legitimate accident. But I think, uh, yeah, like I wouldn't want looking at the world now, world leaders to have access to the technology that Casey and others said that people, you know, in that timeline had certainly not because it's bad enough already with just, you know, nuclear weapons, which, which are not even remotely as powerful as the weapons that, you know, Casey said were deployed in in many cases before that, you know, fractured the earth's crust, ushered in pole shifts, changed the earth's access, um, changed the earth's fundamental ecliptic, all sorts of things that were like, I mean, not to say that nuclear weapons wouldn't probably do a lot of those things, but um, a full nuclear exchange rather. But um, yeah, I think like with good reason, uh, these things have been withheld from from humanity. And I, I, I would say that the real breakthroughs probably will come, you know, many centuries from now. You know, I think we still have a long way to go until this age is, is kind of, you know, reimagined um, fully. But I think we definitely in the 21st century are like at the the cusp of the new age that that we used to live in you know certainly in terms of at least accepting it as a possibility which which to me is like all you can do with any history you know and i i really push that point home i mean how many people see the same thing when you know an event happened yesterday and and you are talking about a time scale that is incomprehensibly long and so i i'm as a historian i'm always reminding people like just take everything you read with a grain of salt, but don't ignore when the evidence is is staring you in the face, whether you like it or not. And to me, that's the sign of a good historian is somebody who can, you know, engage with material that makes them, you know, uncomfortable like me. Like I could not have cared less about remote viewing or channeling before I began the investigation eight years ago into this book whatsoever. You know, I wasn't a debunker, but I had just never really had an interest in it. And I realized it was really important to study like the work of Dean Radin at the, you know, IONS Institute and all these other, you know, academic departments that take it very seriously because it is real on some level and it's not widely understood. And the military has used remote viewers to great effect. And that's a data point. And so why can't it be true if somebody else is saying it and they're getting accurate hits on this thing called you know, Atlantis. And so I think at the end of the day, that's why I called the book Visions of Atlantis, because it's literal, you know, it's part of the book is clairvoyantly channeled visions uh, from Edgar Casey's account, and Frederick Oliver, and, you know, six or seven other channelers that I cite. But it's also like a vision, as you mentioned, of like the future, you know, that that if this had come before, then we can recreate it again, you know, And, and whether we accomplish that or not is irrelevant. It's like, it's at least a something to strive for, you know, because if you don't have an example, then you can just say, well, we've, we've never had anything good, you know, and so by default, the 20th century and the 21st are like the apex of civilization, which to me is probably not the case, 
I, I think we've we've had a lot better technology and better um, understanding of reality than right now. You know. Yeah, I agree. And I think if nothing else, channeling is a great way to you know sort of raise our levels of consciousness because it does. You know, we are interacting with the morphic field all the time. And, um, you know, the more of us that start to access this Akashic wisdom, you know, whatever you want to call it, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, uh, the, the imprints of emotions and thoughts since time began, or, you know, however you want to call it. Sure. I think the more of us that are open to this and able to access it through raising our levels of consciousness, I think this is actually going, this is creating the big shift, I think. And that's a really, I think that's a very mature way to look at uh, this, you know, and I think it's it's cool to hear you put it that way because it's it's so different than I think the way it's portrayed in you know so-called mainstream media or mainstream uh, science, which is to say that it's you know Miss Cleo with tarot cards or a Ouija board. And again, I have a lot of friends that are tarot readers that do incredible work, and I personally had tarot readings that were eerily accurate. So I'm not discounting that. I think. You know, these are just tools that people use to, you know, access what they can do naturally, like to help them organize their, their thoughts, just like the I Ching. Nobody can really explain how the I Ching works, but the I Ching does absolutely work. And I've used that to, you know, great effect to, you know, determine like potentialities, you know, because that's what to me the I Ching is. It's, it's like a scenario generator, but, but it somehow works. And the Chinese somehow figured that out you know, 5,000 plus years ago, like probabilistic mathematical contingency, you know, machine that was used, you know, using, you know, sticks and, and straw and things like this. So I think it's like you said, it's like, it's a tool that people can use um, as long as they use it with, you know, seriousness. And if they, you know, don't bank everything on, well, this is channeled and therefore it's, it's true because now you're into this whole, other world of like, well, what is, you know, truth really at the end of the day, I think there's, there's, you know, this great misunderstanding of that word, like people conflate all the time, mathematical truth, you know, a priori truth with the 99.999 other category of truth that applies to everything else, which is experiential truth, a posteriori truth in philosophy, which is to say, nothing is really true. It's just more probabilistically likely. And, and you, you just have to have this thing called truth to organize your life. But, you know, Ruth can't even prove truly that Michael is not an android from the future sent here to tell you. It's just more likely that I'm a history professor, you know, speaking to you from uh, Mexico, you know. But, but you cannot say that that's absolutely not true. And so I think people forget that because, you know, in, in the Western, particularly modern educational system, you are not taught to think critically. In fact, you're discouraged. And so I think mm. it's really easy to, you know, produce a population that is not even capable of thinking of what I just said. You know, uh, I've talked to adults about that and they've looked at me like I'm crazy. And I'm like, well, it's true though. You know, wink, wink, like double entendre. It is more likely that what I'm saying is more likely, you know, and they just go like, whatever, man. Like, you know, <laughs> I don't want to think about that because they don't even know that there is a, you know, big problem with how we verify information, you know? Well, I think it's about finding our own truth. And I think that's the journey for humanity at the moment, you know, that sort of stepping into your sovereignty and, and 
finding and believing your own truth and then standing by your own truth. And I think, you know, this comes, this information comes from our higher self. It comes from, you know, this Akashic field. It's, you know, we, it comes from, if you like, our electromagnetic energy field, which is around mm. us, you know, the, the, the Taurus field. Mm. And, right, which you know, is measurable, right? Yeah, exactly, measurable, you know, and within there exists all this information. And of course, this is the field of epigenetics. This is all, you mm. know, also the morphic field. There's a mm. lot of science behind this. And I actually go into all of this science in my first book mm. because I'm trying to show people that, you know, what we call the energy or channeling or, you know, psychic phenomena, or all of these things, there's a scientific angle to all of this. And it's, you know, it's essentially magnetism and electricity, you know, exactly. and it's, and this is what the ancient, the advanced civilizations could do. They knew how to harness or manage or tap into whatever, you know, the electromagnetic field, you know, in, and in terms of electricity, and it's something I think that they already knew how to do. And that's how they ended up, you know, with, a, I think, an advanced civilization. And we haven't because we've gone down the plastic and, you know, the crap route with everything. I, I, think, <clears throat> I think that's a really compelling argument. And I think you're, you're right that, you know, we have chosen this one particular way to harness energy. And in fact, that's that Rudolf Steiner said just that, I think in around 1910, 1912, in a lecture, he said, you know, just the way we've created the internal combustion engine to turn oil into gasoline into you know, locomotive forces. Uh, he, so the people of Atlantis figured out a way to use magnetism and light and vibration, gravity, you know, repelling devices, instead of mechanical cranes. Uh, that were much more efficient and, and they appear alien to us and, and like magic because they're using a scientific paradigm that we have not yet rediscovered. Or if we have, it's been suppressed. And I think, you know, the closest we've come to that would be like Tesla or the work of Keeley or, you know, other people who were in the early, early 20th century getting very close to that. And as we see, in um, that chapter of the book, you know, they were uh, stymied by, you know, the familiar forces who, who knew that if you control oil, you dominate geopolitics and, and by extension humanity. So it's like, yeah, I think that you're absolutely right. We don't have to even, you know, get into, you know, so-called religious or even necessarily spiritual realms however real those may be we just have to look at this like you said like they're using a different scientific paradigm that was just as scientific to them as you know an electrician is scientific to us but in medieval europe an electrician would be considered a sorcerer mm, exactly so yeah i mean you look at how much suppression has gone on you know if tesla was allowed to, allowed to run with his uh, zero energy you know we could be a very different world by now and you know and still you know it, there's so much suppression within all of these industries mm -hmm. in terms of where we could be right now absolutely yeah and you know i i've read a lot of great books and you know watched documentaries on you know targeted suppression of these technologies and biographies of Tesla that I read before reading this book. And it's, it's just sad because yeah, I think like a hundred years of him, you know, or his ideas being adopted would have brought us to the point of at least the beginning stages of Atlantis by our current time, like a hundred percent. I have no doubt of that, but 
unfortunately, I shouldn't say unfortunately, it's just the way it is, you know, uh, but, but be that as it may, um, we're still stuck in a very, very primitive to me, technological um, paradigm that's kind of like reached its extension limit in terms of rocketry um, with, you know, these recent developments that, that Elon has made in, you know, 70 plus years of rocketry, you know, and he's one of the few that's even innovated that concept. And then, you know, with communication technology, I guess, to some degree, you could say, you know, advances have been made, but I mean, is it really that advanced? Like we had internet connection problems earlier, you know, it's like, so how advanced really is it? You know, I think it's just like, we have this very, you know, strong arrogance that we must necessarily be at the top, just like the Romans thought they were at the top, just like the ancient Greeks thought they were at the top. And, you know, I think if you look at the big picture now with, you know, the ability to share information like we're doing and powers of the internet to find all these crazy sources that you couldn't really do before, you know, you find a much different picture, which is that, you know, we're still basically ancient Rome with iPhones is how I look at the modern world. It's really, we're speaking version of their language. We're using courthouses that are built with Doric Roman columns. We use Roman law. We have military empires that resemble Rome. I mean, it's really not that different. In fact, we have a Senate in the United States. It's like, are we that advanced? Are we that different? Not really. Um, we just have internet and rockets, you know, but, but have we advanced intellectually since ancient Rome? Not really. There are more slaves in the world now than in ancient Rome's time. Think about that. Oh, yeah, it doesn't surprise me in the slightest. I mean, I think there's a reason why so many billionaires are trying to get off the planet and find other planets. to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm not saying um, I'm a big fan of, you know, say that class in terms of their, you know, world economic vision, world economic form vision of humanity, uh, particularly. But yeah, I mean, I, I think to a lot of those people, it's a lost cause, you know, that, that they see humanity as just, this kind of byproduct of, you know, slow and grinding evolution that just needs to be removed and, you know, supplanted with something different, um, which, you know, they're entitled to their beliefs. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's not necessarily the case. And I don't think it has to be that way. And, and, and I think that this, these people have always been there. You know, I don't think this is a modern thing. I think, in fact, in a lot of the Casey readings, um, if you really sit down and storyboard this whole thing, as I have over the last, you know, seven years, piecing together these 500 plus Atlantis readings and all and others, you, you see the same characters. Like you see a world economic form in Atlantis. It's just called something different. And, and you see these people who want a one world government in that world. You know, and and you see that in Rome, too, with certain emperors, you know, in certain parts of the empire. It's like this has always been here. Like once civilization reaches a kind of terminal point in that time period, that hierarchy necessarily emerges. And so I don't even think the question is like, we've got to get past it. It's like, no, you don't even nearly need to engage with that. You know, you just need to do your own thing. And they come at you. It's like, you tell them politely go like, no, I'm not participating in this. But I don't think the, the answer is like, once the, you know, empire is defeated, then, then the rebels win, you know, because my favorite Star Wars book, uh, Heirs to the Empire, it begins with like, okay, well, when that movie ended in 1983, what happened after that? And you find that another, you know, warlord emerges to fill the, the gap. So it's like, I just think it's something that's always going to be here. 
you know? And I think that's like a much healthier, at least for me, way to look at it than like this very slippery slope that I don't personally like, which is, well, once ultimate victory is achieved, then you reach this kind of static point of, you know, utopia. And it's like, well, the greatest dictators in the world have promised that. And so mm. let's not fall into that trap, you know? Yeah, which is why I think, you know, the the archonic energy that, the, 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 that they talk about in the Nagamadi texts, mm. I think that, that explains a lot to me. But yeah. I also agree that where we put our attention is where we end up. So we need to put our attention to positive, you know, creating a positive world, creating, uh, you know, and then, you know, people like, you know, the, the Skeksis of, the, of the, the World Economic Forum, you know, <laughs> will start to, you know, dissipate, disappear. I mean, we can see some countries have already left the World Economic Forum. I think, you sure. know, they finally realize that it's being re run by an, an absolute psychopathic madman. Of course. Um, some of, of them course. haven't quite figured that out, although I have no idea why not, because it's pretty obvious when you look at him. Pretty obvious. Um, I mean, the, the universe, I think, is, is, is it's the funniest thing, you know, and I don't mean to make light of the situation we're in. But at the end of the day, it's the funniest thing to me um, that you just reminded me. It's like they have put a James Bond villain in front of you who's telling you what he wants to do. I know. And you still can't see it because you think this is a movie or this could only be fiction. It couldn't. And it's it's really interesting to me and has been since day one of all this BS that it's taken people three years to see what a lot of people saw coming 30 years ago, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, you know, in the case of the Huxleys and people like this. And so. I just look at it at this point, not like flippantly or to dismiss the very real severity of the situation we are in, but kind of like what you said, like, you know, these, these, they're like the clown from it, you know, it's only scary if you believe in it, you know, it can kill you still, but, but it's, it's very interesting to think of it. Like these people are only as powerful as you let them, you know, and, and, and they couldn't have done any of this without the complicity absolute complicity of a majority of humanity and so i'm more angry at humanity you know for for enforcing this you know rather than the architects of this you know who who in their own vision have you know a very different way of organizing society but i i think it's just helpful not to think of it like you know once they go away it's like no once you just circumvent the problem it goes away like, and you can do that right now, you know, and it's the same with war or, you know, just this major problems on earth. I'm not saying it's simple, but it's, it's not something that has to be, you know, fought in a traditional sense, I think, which, which we're still kind of doing in the West, at least, you know. Yeah, exactly. We don't have to fight them. We just have to put our attention onto something else. So, you know, create the world that we want to create create mm -hmm. the things that we want to create, you know, and be heart led and follow, you know, through love and compassion, you know, and people like that naked plucked turkey, you know, <laughs> will, will just be laughed at as the naked plucked turkey, you know, that he is. And so I just think, stop going to those conferences. I don't, you know, I don't understand all those people that are sitting in the room in the YouTube videos that you see. Well, you gotta be honest with me though. Won't you miss him? Won't you miss just the sheer absurdity of those people? I, I know I will. I mean, I obviously would like to see them held accountable for, for many of their little schemes. But 
it's not going to work. We can't because if we even start holding them accountable, we are back in the low vibrational energy again. There you we, go. we only have to stay in the heart space. And I agree with you. You know, I, I am writing my next book and I so just want to, you know, just absolutely just decimate so many people as I'm writing it. But sure. I know that that's not going to help the world evolve. It's not going to raise the vibration of the planet and it's not going to do anything. You know, it's just going to create more low vibrations. So the only thing that, that any of us can do is raise our vibration above these, you know, maniac psychopathic people. <laughs> Then that in itself, because it's looking at the work of Dr. David Hawkins. So he, you know, with the his consciousness level, and we need to, the more of us that raise our levels of consciousness, then we will, we will move into, you know, the heart, you can call it the heart chakra or, you know, love or compassion or whatever. Once we get there, all this other stuff just fades away because it's actually no longer a vibrational match for humanity anymore. Right. Anakin says as well that mm. all we have to do is humans if just for one day all humans stayed in the heart space in love just for one day all these dark forces would go from the planet because we're no longer a vibrational match very interesting very interesting and and I think it's kind of like the only as as counterintuitive as this sounds it, it's it's actually more likely to succeed than all the other things like tribunals or litigation and because it's like you're never gonna win they, they would they would never permit themselves to exactly. go before a tribunal you know and while I respect people who are exploring these things and I think it's very serious and it should be you know on the table it's like I don't ever expect to see that because you know these people are beyond that framework they don't obey the same rules, even at the supranational level. They are the law. They are the creators of all these rules. And so I think you're right. And I think that, like, you know, it's not such a scary big deal if you just decide as you have. And it's not even with, you know, them that I have an issue so much in terms of just like, you know, interacting with people in society. Like, I've never run into Bill Gates or Klaus Schwab or any of these people. They've never come to my house. You know, I, I hope they don't. But it's like uh, these crazy people that are their kind of like brainwashed minions that have attacked me in, in the streets of Chicago or, you know, this or that. And in reality, you know, for, for my belief system or just my way of like looking at the world, um, those are the people that I'm going to have to deal with. And so I'm, I think that absolutely applies to, to all these, these things. Like you just have to kind of go like, thank you. Like, I'm going to defend myself if you physically come at me like that. But what I realized about halfway into all this, what I realized was absolutely the case that what you just said was like, that was when people in my condo, for example, at the beginning of the lockdowns in summer of 2020 in Chicago, that was when people attacked me the most was when I was so angry and thinking about like, how could these people be doing this? How could they be obeying this? Why can't they see this? That was when it was coming at me the most. And then once I reached a point of like, wow, this is just an interesting thing to witness. It was like, I wasn't even there. Like people just, you know, looked at me kind of like, oh, this person has never worn a mask, but you know, I'm not going to say anything like he's, he's doing, you know, it's like, uh, these aren't the Jedi you're looking for kind of thing. And I think that's absolutely true. You know, I must, I know you have to go and I know I'm taking up a lot of your time. I must just ask you one final question because it, this is something I've been reading a lot. Um, 
with the Sumerian tablets. What are your thoughts on Enki and Enlil? You know, I'm not an expert on ancient Sumeria. Um, I've only read probably, you know, a handful of books on that. Um, I, I don't have a strong opinion, for example, about people's claim that Zechariah Sitchin was mistranslating things and that all of his books are just falsifications. I, I cannot speak to that because I don't have any expertise on ancient Sumerian translations. But um, I will say that the one Sumerian uh, aspect that I do talk about was their creation myth, uh, like their version of, of, of Genesis, which I touch on in the book. And, and it does talk basically about genetic manipulation. In fact, it says as much in the Greek translation that they were breeding you know, various hybrids at this thing. And they said, you can see it in the stone reliefs from the temple of Bel, you know, and Bel is the same entity as Baal or Belial, or however you want to gut at the devil, you know, different iterations of this this character. So I thought that was interesting that, not to answer your question directly, um, but- No, it's fine. I I was thinking about the Enuma Elish and the Atrahasis, the translations of them. And yeah, you're right. It has has all of this same information that Casey talks about with the, you know, genetically creating humans, Mm -hmm. with- um, the flood story, you know, which then becomes the Noah story, you know, mm-hmm. wiping out the civilizations. And then, you know, you've got uh, the giants, you know, mm-hmm. all these same things. So, you know, possibly there is some truth to these uh, tablets then. I think I think there must be. And I think that, you know, in his case, it's difficult because, you know, he's one of, according to him, I think, you know, five or 10 people in the world that's ever spent that much time, you know, allegedly translating them. And, you know, he's made a huge career and a lot of money and, you know, wild success. And I, I've read his books and, you know, I've read a few um, of his earlier books and like 10 or 15 years ago before I even started writing mine. And I, I was interested, like I thought it was fascinating, but I could never as a historian confirm that because it's like anytime anybody says I have access, specialized information that can't really be critiqued by other Sumerian experts. I wonder, because I've read other people who have said he he mistranslated a lot of these things, but he did translate certain things absolutely correctly. So it's like, I don't even know how you would, you know, piece all that together. You'd have to probably, you know, hire a team of investigators to go through like everything that he said and which source and you know, are these originals? That's another problem with a lot of this stuff. It's like, was that really an original tablet or was that a later, you know, dynastic tablet or was it a forgery you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's very difficult. It's very difficult. And so, but I think it's the same time. It's like, it's important to look thematically. And it's like, well, you have a man from Kentucky who had never read anything but the Bible in the newspaper talking about this before Zechariah Sitchin. Then you have Zechariah Sitchin, who I don't believe ever read or studied Edgar Casey's readings to any real serious extent. If he did, I'm not aware of it. And then you have Rudolf Steiner before Edgar Casey saying the same things. And then you have this kid in 19th century Oregon channeling similar things. And over time, it begins to seem that like, at least thematically, there were some sort of, you know, shenanigans uh, going on back in that part of the world. Mm. And I mean, why else do they have Uh, as I've seen myself at the Oriental Museum in Chicago. I mean, why else would you spend so much time making super detailed stone effigies of hybrid human beings, you know, who don't just look like people wearing masks, you know, they look like how you would immortalize a hybrid being in a stone relief. And so I think 
that's to some degree evidence itself. Yeah. Do you know, that reminds me of something you said in the Frederick Oliver that um, Zalem, uh, that mm. um, his uh, girlfriend was turned to stone. And I was thinking, do you know yes. what, that, that would explain how we have so many of these stone statues around the world that are just perfectly precise. Oh, my God. If they were all, oh, my God, you know. <laughs> That's terrifying, Ruth. I, <laughs> I know, I know. I've never even thought about that. That's that's unbelievable. That's such because a shocking so revelation. They're, they're so precise for the, the time period that they were made in. Wow. Well, and you know, uh, another thing that's that's really interesting that uh, maybe we could talk about another time, but like the Greek story of, what is it from? I believe it's, oh, it's in the Jason and the Argonauts. Uh, on I believe it's Jason. On one of his voyages, you know, he gets to, I think it's uh, the island of Crete. You know, and again, in that story, which again, you could look at as mythical or you could look at as semi-historical, but I think it's more semi-historical than we like to believe. Um, but, you know, in that story, when he gets to the island, he describes having to fight this brass or bronze robot who is powered by its own volition, like through steam or some sort of mechanical appliance that patrols the island called Talus. And he defeats it by basically popping a vein that has its oil supply in it and it dies, you know? And it's like, you know, was this some sort of creation? Like, you know, one of the alleged robots that Archimedes was able to build or, you know, even accounts, fairly reliable accounts from middle ages of, of people seeing some sort of automatons in, you know, laboratories of people. And it's like, again, I think I think we don't give people enough credit. Like the Greeks had the ability to open the doors to religious temples using steam with no hands involved. In Plato's time, I believe they had steam engines that could actually open doors to temples using hydraulics and steam power. So it's like, who knows really? Like, I don't think it's just normal to write all this off. Like, and, and what you just said is incredible because you're right. Like in that story, uh, they turn lolix to, to stone you know and uh yeah i mean that would be absolutely absurd if we were actually looking in some cases of like uh petrified people who are transmuted that would that would be even more terrifying you know i, know. <laughs> I don't even want to I'm, I'm going to bed soon you know i'm gonna have a nightmare no, okay so let's end by uh just say, saying you know how can people um contact you how can they buy your book you know all these sorts of things oh sure well you know um if you'd like to include a link you know below this yes, it's, it's available yeah it's available on amazon in um you know kindle hardcover softcover and um just finishing next week it should be submitted and available on audible for an audiobook um by mid-march so very excited about that i play I play a pretty creepy role in, in actually I play the role of the person that transmuted the uh, lolix to to stone. That's so funny you just brought that up because that's my cameo, Ruth. If, if you want to uh -huh. listen to that as a dark mage in the book. <laughs> but um <clears throat> no, it's very cool and we have music and some sound effects in there and I was very lucky to find a really great um narrator, you know, who was who was like a a tremendous resource and himself a religious and ancient history scholar who happened to be available on audible to do this so I, i'm so grateful for for that and um yeah it's you can contact me through um uh, sometimes i'm on facebook and, and linkedin um i'm working on a website so yeah and usually i respond you know with and that's how we met i believe right on, on yeah, linkedin yeah. 
via LinkedIn. Yeah, yeah. you're very active on LinkedIn. So yeah. Yeah. And thank you. I, I had a great time. I mean, I, I think it's so cool to, um, yeah, because I'm sure you yourself experience, you know, um, there's not a lot of people um, that you can just go up to on the street and start talking about these things. And I think it's so cool to to talk to somebody who actually not only is, you know, yourself an expert on this field and, and you know, other things that I don't even, you know, know about and is working on her own book, but that you you read this and you know, provided some of the earliest, you know, feedback to me. And I thought that was so cool. I think you were one of the first people actually, if not the first, um, outside of my friends and family to, to actually um, take a look at this. So I, I appreciate that, you know, the, yeah. the, the original fan. <laughs> yeah, no, it's great. I love it. I love this book. And I highly recommend, you know, to the the listeners to to get a copy from Amazon and uh, and read it. It's really interesting, really, really fascinating. You know, and it combines the science and the more esoteric, which is what I liked about it. Well, thank you. Thank you. Well, then I've, I've done my job, I guess. And, yeah. and I, I wish you the best. I can't wait to read, you know, the next book that you you come out with. It sounds like a very interesting one. Oh, well, I'll send you a copy. Thank you. I would love to. Yeah, I would love to read it, really. Anytime, you know, if you have another question or you'd like to talk about, um, you know, your own research, I would love to, you know, come back on in, in, a, in a month or so. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm definitely up for that. All okay. right. I'm going to let well, you go because I know it's midnight for you and I'm sure you must be absolutely exhausted. <laughs> it is. It is. No problem. No, absolutely. Always <laughs> worth my time. Okay. All right. Thanks a lot. Okay. All right. Take care, okay. Ruth. Bye. Bye-bye.